So one of the nicest things that we like is having order on the farm and having straight rows and having things look nice and orderly. And I'm going to turn it over to him. <laughs> so have you guys, you guys have all probably, or how many people have seen John Martin? His stuff? Okay. How many have seen like uh, Connor Crickmore's stuff? Do you guys notice, do you notice the difference? Or, or a difference? Like, so John Martin is way more uh, artistic or free-flowing. I don't know what you want to say. But, and that's how I used to be. You know, so I'd take the cedar and I'd walk down the row and kind of, I would try and keep it straight, but if it wasn't perfect, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and I started doing the strings last year or the year before, and I thought this is really going to slow me down. It's going to be annoying, but once I started using them, I love it because everything is perfectly straight and when you go to cultivate or weed you know you can just walk down the row so you guys see our christmas trees there on the right <laughs> bolting headlights yeah um so basically for direct seeding you can't see anything so we use string and then we use a gritter how many of you guys have seen a gritter a few so this is the coolest thing since strings. So you basically get different sizes and you just pull it down the row and it, as it goes, it makes a grid. So this one, we have two on there. So basically you can just walk, right? And it makes a line. Here, let me walk down. So this one here is, um, it's not very wide. So, you know, we have them that are up to 26 inches wide. You can roll it down the walkway there and then they can see how it works. So on the side, it has a thing that sticks out and that lines up with the string. So when I'm dragging it down the row, I just look at the string and then it stays straight. Yep, so the main purpose of this is to space your plants lengthwise and across the bed. So, um, you know, so the wheel makes a line, the circle, and then the cross piece makes a line. So we have some of these that have six rows and five rows and four rows, three rows, two rows, right? And this one here is uh, my homemade version. And... Basically, I just figured out what I needed. I went and talked to a metal shop that had a CNC, and they cut out all the pieces for me, and then I welded it together. So it, it saves an amazing amount of time and is worth the money. So I think you can get like a set of three or four for like $400 or something. And mine, I put a handle on it. I just weld the handle. The other ones, they have interchangeable handles. So you take the handle off and and on mine, I put, a, I put it in an angle so I can just walk down the walkway and it's following me in the bed. So that's helped a lot. Um, but that thing helps with, so the, the alternative to the cheaper alternative to that is a rake, like a 30 inch bed rake that you can put little pieces of like PEX pipe on there, you know, and then, so you can put three on there or four and drag it down the bed straight and then you change the spacing and then you come back and you go this way. 
and it works, but the trenches get bigger and then as they dry out, they're harder to see. With this one, you just go down and it's crisp and clean and um, I, yeah, I think it's changed our farm a lot. So, and we have, we do have pictures. If you want to come up and look later, we can show you what the actual grid looks like, but it's just a square grid. No. Um, so for our cedars, we use the Jang cedar primarily. And when we bought this thing, it was, hmm? yeah, so it's the one on the right. And they're about five or $600. And we got this when we were in Seattle. And before this, we were doing everything by hand. And man, that's excruciating. And by the time you get like a quarter down the row of one row, you've gone through all your salad seed because you're putting them in too thick. And so anyway, that thing helps a ton. You can get different rollers for it. So basically you make, they make a roller for each size of seed. And then it will have 12 rows or 24 rows on it. And then on the cedar itself, it has sprockets on the front and the back and different size sprockets that fit right on there. So, you know, if you want salad mix, you can do it to where it drops at every inch. If you want green beans, it'll do it six inches and you can just change the sprockets out. The main downside to this one is for every crop that you want to do that's different, you have to buy a roller. And the rollers are 20 to $24 a piece. So there is some cost there. Um, but it's very accurate. It saves on seed cost and it's fast. So you, know, you can walk down the bed at not quite walking speed, but pretty fast. Another thing is, like this last year, the hopper on it broke, and we were able to buy another hopper. And you can buy like all the different gadgets and gizmos and wing nuts and things. So if it breaks, you can repair it, which is nice. And we also had in the middle here, we had one on an old farm, and it was 12 rows wide and it went behind the tractor. And the nice thing about that was we had 12 hoppers. So if we were doing beets or carrots or whatever, my wife could be there just changing out seeds. And basically as fast as I was driving down and turn around and whatever, she could have the next set of seeds ready, the next set of hoppers. And then you can just plop them in. But that unit there is probably $5,000 by the time you get all the rollers. And now they have ones that are like JP5, where you know, it has five rows and 15 inches wide, so you can walk down and then come back. Um, so really good seeder. It does well with soil that isn't super clean. Um, there's also the six row cedar, which is 15 inches wide, so you can go down and back, and then you get 12 rows in a 30 inch bed. There's also the earthway, which is good for some things and horrible for others. So there's a lot of options. And you can always use your finger. It seems crazy, but there are people that do that. And I actually did that this year for some things I was kind of experimenting with. And I used the gritter and I went down and like with cilantro and some other things and I just went and stuck one at each grid, right? And the grid was deep enough to where I could just put the seed in there and then I came back with a rake and raked it and everything was there, it was spaced. So you can do it, but. Um, so for direct seeding, we try and keep all our seeding supplies together, keep frequently planted varieties together. So we do a lot of greens, salad, arugula, spinach and things. So we basically keep them in a tote like this, 
we just kind of keep all our varieties together and then when I'm ready to go out and plant, I just grab the whole tote. So I'm not going and rifling through all my watermelon seeds and everything in October, right? Um, by the way, these are pretty good totes that we use that you can't buy anymore, so. I don't know, anyway. It's, it's a great size, but they quit making them. I don't know why, but you could get them for like $7, but. Um, keep a list, records of cedar settings used. So this, this is more helpful, you know, when you're first starting out. I don't necessarily look at the list every time of what I'm doing. I look at what I'm doing and I know, because I only have like five or six rollers that I use, I know this seed goes with this one. You know, so I'm not looking at the list every time, but when you're first starting out, it definitely helps. And you can weigh seeds before and after. And the main benefit to this is, you know, there's nothing worse than walking down, planting a whole bed to realize three weeks later you didn't actually get the seed in the ground. Um, so, you know, you can just simply weigh them out and see, you know, you put 14 ounces in and when you got done, you have 10 ounces. So you know that four ounces got out. And, you know, we have actually done it when we did it and something got stuck or it didn't work right. So you can do that. You don't have to, but it might help. Um, you want to ensure that seeds are properly covered. Sometimes with the cedar, you know, there might be a few popping up, so you just kind of walk down. Um, you can also use a bed roller, and there's different ones. I have a, just a lawn roller, you know, that I got from a rental company. Um, and, you know, so we, we'll seed it, and then we'll row it, roll it down the row with water in it. And it just kind of helps firm up the soil, so you have good soil to seed contact. And a quick story on that, if you can't find one, which I, which I couldn't, I talked to the rental company and they said, yeah, I asked them if I could buy it, and they said no. And I said, well, what happens if I don't bring it back? How much will that cost me? And the lady's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, if I don't bring it back, you're going to charge me, right? She said, well, yeah, I guess. And so <laughs> she said, well, let me talk to my manager. So she got her manager, and he got on the phone, and he's like, oh, you want to buy it? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, sure, I'll sell it to you. So he, he's like, I've been wanting to get a new one anyway. So he sold it to me for like $60. So, and I was going to pay like 30 to rent it. So just get creative and you can always ask him things like that. Um, so we also use row cover and insect netting. Um, and the thing with this is if you're planting arugula in July, you know, and you wait three days to row cover it or four days, it's probably gonna to be too late. So basically as soon as you, as you plant it, you wanna put the row cover down so that nothing can get in there, right? There's nothing worse than coming back a week later and trapping everything in there. Um, and then obviously you, you wanna water it in. And do you literally cover the bed with a fabric? Yeah, so the row, yeah, so we plant it and then we put row cover, which basically to keep the insects out right away. Um, you can ask me later. So we use different row covers, but I can give you the names. I think it might be on the... We don't use hoops. We do some, but for the most part we don't. Because we have such a large greenhouse, it's easier just to keep... We don't have wind or anything like that, so... Alright. Hey, there's a greater picture. So, you can see here 
the grids, right? So that's a three-row grid. So those are, um, I believe those are 10 inches apart. So you have 10 row this way, and, or 10 inches this way and 10 inches this way. So you can see how nice and orderly it looks, right? And it's simple. All I did was put up the strings, and then I drug the gritter down, and everything is straight. Um, which is very important for things developing uniformly. You know, if you put head lettuce that's four inches apart, and then eight inches apart, and ten inches apart, which I've seen plenty of, you know, things get stressed out and whatever. So this, this helps a lot. So yeah, gritter, gritter, and gritter. Can't recommend it enough. And then a nice hand trowel as a finger saver. I prefer just to use my fingers to plant, but um, to transplant. But if it's hard or if crusty or anything, just a nice little garden trowel I find works fine. You can buy more expensive ones and fancier ones, but um, and two people is ideal. So generally, if I can wrangle up somebody, I have somebody plopping, which is, you know, you get the thing out and then you plop it, ideally close to where it's supposed to be. And then I come behind, you know, I'm straddling the bed and I'm planting as fast as I can. Um, so the big thing with this is you don't want to lay out more than you can plant quickly. You know, if you have a whole bed, these are in the shade, so we can put a bunch out there, but if you're doing it in July and the wrong time of day and you put them all out there, they're going to get toasted pretty quick. So, And then you want to ensure that roots are fully covered with soil. So some of this stuff seems basic and fairly advanced at the same time. You know, Ellen White talks about every, um, oh, what does she say? I can't remember exactly now, but how you should gently put them in, you know, like, this is a, a critical stage, so if you're just slamming them in there and they're getting covered with soil and you know, you're not being careful, it's not good. At the same time, you know, if you're uh, sitting there you know, and you plant it and you're like, you know, being super careful and like, you know, which we've seen it plenty. You know, you have interns come onto the farm and maybe they had a little garden or some flower pots and then you say, you know, we're going to transplant, right? And they start caressing and gently talking to it. And, you know, so there's a happy medium. There's a balance, right? So, for example, um, if you're planting salnova and you got a 100-foot bed and you got four rows that are six inches apart, you got 800 plants, right? So if you have 800 plants and it takes you five seconds per plant, it's going to take you over an hour to plant the 100-foot bed. So... You, you know, you don't want to be out there bent over all day planting if you can help it. Um, and basically what I try and do is I stick the shovel in with my left hand and then it's, I just push it forward and I put the plant in there and then I go like this. You know, so it's like three movements. I'm not, you know, opening it up, putting it in there and then, you know, four or five things. So you got to get quick at it. And not all crops transplant well, so know your varieties. Although we've tried about all of them. You know, people always say don't transplant carrots, but we tried it and it still doesn't work. Although there are some people, there are some people that are using the paper pot with some success. So, so here's a quick video of our paper pot 
and this was the first time we'd use it. Um, so this is these that we were talking about, okay? Some of you are asking how this goes into the ground. And you can actually do this without the paper pot. You can dig a trench and put it in there by hand and cover it. You can do it without the transplanter, yeah. But this kind of shows how easy it is. So it makes a little furrow and then puts it in there and then covers it up. These are green beans. Yeah, these are green beans. Look at our black soil. <laughs> On that dark video. <laughs> we, we do have pretty amazing soil, but the trick is making your, looks, your soil look better is use a dark screen. <laughs> but see how we use the strings? We're actually using them. I think this was like his first time using it, so he was being slow and cautious. You can go a little faster than this. Yeah. And the nice thing is there's no motors. There's no anything. The downside to this whole system is it costs probably you know, about $3,000 to get going. By the time you buy the paper pot transplanter, the trays, the spreaders, the, the pots, the, pots the, you know, the dibbler is $225. That's why we didn't buy it, but we probably should have. <laughs> but so anyway, that's that. And you can paper pot, you know, head lettuce, greens, our bunching onions we do a lot of, and this helps tremendously. Um, so this is kind of talking about like the green beans. They're pretty quick, but you know, sometimes we get, like this year we got uh, 18 inches of snow May 21st. So, you know, if we had them like, we can have them like this in the greenhouse, multiple plantings, and then as soon as the weather is good, we just pop them out and they're growing, so. Matt, does it plant the, the paper goes in the ground too? Yeah, so the paper, the paper, the whole thing goes in the ground. And they're biodegradable, but we never, Basically, as soon as the crop is done, we pull the whole paper back out. We rake it out of the beds. We rake it out. It's just because it doesn't degrade fast enough. And right currently, they're still okay for organic certification, but there's some debate on the glue, and so they're coming up with better methods. But all right, yep. So weed control and cultivation. Um, how many people love weed control? I actually, the joy, the joy yeah, it, it's one of my favorite things to do because it's like mowing a lawn, you know, you can go out there and make it look beautiful, and the better you get at it, the easier it gets. Um, so we use a decent amount of landscape fabric, and we're probably going to use a lot more this year just because we don't have a lot of help, um, but it reduces a huge amount of time and labor for weeding, and great for beginning transitioning farms. One thing that it does really well for us is we have our big greenhouse, the roof is getting older and we have a lot of holes in it. So in a big rainstorm, you know, water's sliding down the roof and then it goes through a hole and we get like all these little waterfalls and water splashing up everywhere, making a mess. So this helps a lot with that because it doesn't make a mess. So you can, and this helps outside too. You can go out there and you can harvest your head lettuce and it's clean, there's no dirt on it. So it helps a ton with um, post-harvest. And it's long-lasting. So this stuff, you know, you can, at the end of the year, you can pack it up, put it away in a barn, and 
you can probably get 12 to 30 years out of it, depending on how you're using it. There's guys that I've talked to that have been using it for over 20 years, and it's still going strong. Um, on the left of this hoop house here, you can see we have it going outside of the hoop house. And these areas used to be one of the, the hardest areas, and they would often get neglected because they're hard to cultivate. And basically, the things that are hard to do, you don't do, I've found. You do the things that are the most pressing and that are going to make you money and that are right before you. So the more of these things you can do, um, it just makes things more enjoyable. So yeah, and they're, they're pre-spaced, so we burn holes in all our fabric and we've done it different ways, but we find the best is just to roll it out in the grass and make a template and go through and burn them. And once they're done, they're done. So don't try cutting them because they'll just fray and make a mess. But so we get ours um, in Denver. You can get them all over the place, but they're pretty reasonable. You can get like this roll is 30 by 300, and I think it costs probably 22 dollars. And then this uh, we're burning it with just a small propane torch with a Coleman gas bottle. We've also used um, three-inch propane fittings, or plumbing fittings. And we make a fire, and we get them in there and get them glowing hot and run around and burn holes. That's more fun doing it that way. <laughs> but this way is, you know, you can just grab it, and you can go out there, and you can do it. You don't have to build a fire. And we put fittings on the end of the torches, too. Yeah, we've also put fittings on the end of this. You can also buy them now. They're kind of expensive, but... I am burning one layer at a time. There are people that do multiple layers, and I've tried it and haven't got the best success, so. Yeah, my template is just a, a plywood template. I just, yeah, so I just marked it out. It's completely safe. Just do it, I do it when it's got a slight breeze, so it blows all the plastic into the neighbor's yard. I'm just kidding, okay. Um, but it, yeah, landscape fabric is a huge blessing. So right, you can see right there to the left of me, we have all our strawberries and landscape fabric, which, yeah, and see right next to it, that spot, that's kind of, the beds that we had were kind of pre-done before we got there or whatever, but so it's kind of this awkward space between our growing beds and the strawberry bed, which we don't have landscape fabric down and we didn't cultivate there, so we have dandelions growing, but. Um, landscape fabric really helps with strawberries because the runners go out and they can't establish themselves. So then you can just go through and clip them off. Uh, the flame weeder is a great tool if you use it and if you use it at the right time. So th the good thing with flame weeding is you can do stale seed bedding, which means, you know, if I'm going to grow a crop a month from now, you know, I can germinate stuff. I can take the flame weeder down, kill everything on the surface let it grow up again, and then I can um, water it and basically treat it like it's a crop, my weeds, and then flame weed it all again. And then I have pretty much everything in the surface is dead, and then I can plant, let's say, carrots. And, um, and some people, there's all kinds of things you can do. You can transplant, or you can put beets and carrot seeds together, 
and the beet should pop up, you know, a day or two before the carrots. So when the beet pops up, you take the flame weeder down, you kill any weeds that are just coming up, and you might not even see them. And then the next day or the day after, the carrots pop up, and they can get going for, you know, a week or so before any other weeds start. Like I said, it only works if you use it. And if you miss your window, then it's, it's no good. So. Um, so cultivation does not equal weeding. And timing of cultivation is everything. So when I'm saying cultivation, um, it's like using a hoe or something, some kind of mechanical device. And big tractors have these, all kinds have them, right? But you're going and you're basically disturbing the soil. And you're pulling up the small roots anything like that and you're exposing it to the to the sunlight and preventing weeds from the beginning um, is nine tenths of the battle so there's also like the stitch in time saves nine or those kinds of things if you can get it when they're this small or when you don't even see it is so much different than when they're you know this tall and when you get them this small it's enjoyable because you can just walk down the bed back and forth and it's part of your exercise program so we try and start roughly a week after we transplant. Um, and you just gotta use your best judgment. And if your judgment isn't good, it will get better. <laughs> right, so if you're cultivating something that you planted yesterday and you move it, you know, or three or four days from now and you move it and you kill it, you know, next time you'll know I need to be a little bit more careful. And this is probably one of the biggest things. When you, when you weed, you wanna weed all four sides. You know, so we're usually, people are pretty good, if they're good, about weeding in the bed, but then the walkways were not so good, or especially the ends where the headers are. And if you don't weed those areas, then your weeds just begin encroaching. So, Laura had asked if we, um, if we till the walk path, can you talk about how we deal with the, the perimeters? Yeah, I think it's on another slide here, but. Is it? Okay, well. So, yeah, so we basically, um, yeah, well, let's we'll go on. Okay. So in landscape, landscape fabric areas that are not easily manageable. So this is the perfect example. And I think everyone's dealt with this to some degree, you know, where you have the header for your drip tape. You know, for me to go through there and cultivate, I have to have somebody, you know, basically picking it up as I go so that I can get a hoe underneath there or something. Um, and you know the area behind it was one of our hard areas so we put landscape fabric down and then we put landscape fabric there where we're planting lettuce and we didn't put it under the header so it's in an area that we never cultivate and it's hard so we should have put you know we could have just cut a two-foot strip put it underneath there and it would have looked way nicer so this is a mutineer how many people have seen this device the mutineer or heard of it. So, here you want to hold. Yep. So this is basically from Never Sink Farms. They um, are the ones that, they developed several different tools. So this is one of their cultivation systems, Never Sink Tools. And so it's called the mutineer and it comes, you can buy all these different heads for it. And so these are a wire weeder and there's different widths and um, different purposes for those. And then they also have these collinear hose that can go on there. And they come with a carabiner, so you can just clip it like on your 
take it with you. Yeah, so change them out as needed. So instead of carrying around 10 hoes, I just carry on one. And I'm out there, I just swap it out. And I have one that didn't make it in here that comes up and there's a hole in the middle, which I don't think this is a video, but so it basically goes around both sides of the crop. So you can walk down the arugula row on both sides, you know, basically as fast as you can walk. And so I have a video of him hoeing a bed and he has a big smile on his face right here, but you can't see it. <laughs> so it's nice. So oh, that, yes. this is the That's one, yeah. The one. So it's cultivating both sides around the lettuce. And he's walking upright, so he doesn't have to bend over, and he's just pulling it kind of behind him as he walks. So the videos are kind of bouncy. So see how quick it is to go from one end of the bed to the other, and then you just kind of go back and forth, back and forth. And if those weren't straight, you could not do that. And so there's different widths of these, so you can use like in between the rows. So if you didn't have that um, specific one, you could use something like this where you could just weed in between the rows of lettuce rather than on both sides. And these basically you just pop it out like on your drill and you pop it in. So it doesn't get much simpler than this. Hold this. Um, I'm going to show you real quick how to just a couple different methods and kind of the different um, ways that you would use different ones. Stand up. So basically, that you know the goal is to not bend over as much as possible. So when I'm doing this, I'm just in an upright position and I'm walking down the bed, right? I'm watching what I'm doing, and I'm basically trying to go this fast because you have a lot to do. So um, that's with like the wire weeders. If you use a collinear hoe, which is developed by um, Elliot Coleman, they're a different type of tool, right? So they're basically they're like you use them more upright, and these are great because they have it goes out on both sides. So this is more used for like lettuce and those kind of things where you want to get underneath the crop. You know, so you can go right around your lettuce head without disturbing the leaves. Um, and these again... You're going to go underneath the, the lettuce leaves. But these aren't like a hula hoe, you know, you're not like reaching out. You can, but that's not what they're designed for. They're designed for, again, like walking, you know. So how many of you guys are familiar with a hula hoe or a stirrup hoe and have used those? So usually when you're using those, you're kind of... Yeah, like those are... You're pushing and pulling and really having to get your back into it. It's a lot of work. So the hula, the hula hose are probably the greatest design at one point, but not so much anymore. You know, because you're constantly... You know, they're a reaching tool, right? So you're always reaching, which puts a lot of strain on your back. And I should have put that video over here. Yeah, so I had a... I made a one that I put like a 10-foot handle on years ago so I didn't have to reach, you know, and then I could just like go way out there. But you can get creative, but these are these are so much nicer. What's that one called? This is called a um, collinear hoe. So this tool with the changeable head is the mutineer and then there's the wire weeders that you can buy and then there's the um, collinear hose that you can buy 
and then there's what's the other one called that goes around? I don't remember what that one's called. Anyway, they have different attachments that you can buy. You can buy sets. You can buy individual ones on Never Save Tools. So. Yep. Anyway, I, I would highly recommend these. What roughly is stuff like that around? So this runs roughly, I don't know, two hundred dollars, two fifty. With the heads, I think. It's been a while since I've bought them, but they're they're worth every penny. So, so this is how we cultivate. We that's our bed with our black soil, and we basically just walk down. Here, hold this. Just like what he was doing in the video, you kind of go down. And then so you go down, right? And this is what you don't want to do. You don't want to go down like this, and then like walk around and go this way, right? Because God gave us multiple arms and things. So you want to go down and then change your position, right? Because we can be ambidextrous if we, if we practice. Body, right? Yeah. Because if you come around to the other side of the bed and you're still using your right hand and then you're using your right hand and, you're, and then pretty soon your body is going to be like this because you're yeah. always using your right hand. So you want to go down and back and kind of you know, it, give your body a break. It takes a little bit of practice, but it's really not that bad. You should be able to get it pretty quick to where you're just walking speed both directions. So you go down, yeah, really fast. So then you go down and back, and then you go that way, right? If you're, if you're going down the bed and you're like this, you know, and you're kind of like reaching everywhere, it's not nearly as fast as just walking and walking. So, yeah, so I'm just walking, you know, I'm, I'm just looking. You know, trying to keep my feet in the walkway, whatever. Picking up dirt here, sand. <laughs> and then I'm coming back this way, right? And then I get to the end of the row, and then I start coming this way. And I just go like this, right? Make sense? It's important to get the weeds before they become established, because once they become really established, they're not going to come up as as often. So you want to do this regularly, like probably weekly. Um, so we do that, and then hand weed is needed, so if there's some weeds that didn't come up or that are too close to the plants. And, and the hand weeding part, you know, this is where hand weeding is fun, right? Because our kids can come back behind us, and they can go through and weed a whole bed in, you know, three or four minutes. And it looks beautiful, and they enjoy it. If they're doing everything by hand, it takes a long time. So then we use a wheel hoe, and for some reason it didn't make it in here, but how many know what a wheel hoe is? So a wheel hoe, you know, it, there's a wheel, and then it comes up with handles, and then you can put different, some of them you can put different um, attachments on. So then you're using the wheel and your arms to, to push. So it's like a stirrup hoe. So it's like a stirrup hoe, but with uh, some technology built in. So you can get different um, stirrup hose, you can get different widths. But basically you can just kind of walk down the walkway as fast as you can go, turn around and walk back the other way. So this is the process. We wire weed the bed or, or whatever, and then we hand weed, and then we do the perimeters with the wheel hoe. And the reason we do the perimeters the last is because you want those things, you want any weeds that are there up on the surface so that the sun comes and, and bakes them. So if you do that first, and then you're cultivating, 
you know, the weed that was up on the surface, you might step and push it back down in the soil. So that's what we do for that. So the wheel hose good for weeds that are really established too, because it... Yeah, the wheel hose is an amazing device that I just bought this last year. And I don't know why, but you can, you can almost start a farm with a wheel hoe and a tilter and a broad fork. And, you know, there's different attachments you can put. You can put, like, tines on the back to where you can rip up the soil. And um, we've actually had areas where we had sod that was, like, 10 feet long that we needed to increase our beds. So I took the stirrup hoe and I cut off all the sod. And then I broad forked it and used that little S-tine thing and kind of ripped it up and then tilted it. So you can do it, but it's just more work. It's a lot of back labor, but there, you know, you can also, if you had a weedy area that you were trying to turn over quick with the wheel hoe and, a, and the, the blade on it, you know, you could probably do an area this big in an hour. Whereas, yeah, and they have hillers, you know, so we plant our potatoes with them, but you can ask us more about wheel hose. So irrigation, there's many different ways to irrigate. Um, and obviously this depends upon your farm. You know, some of the bigger farms use flood irrigation where they just, they flood out and there's so many different ways. We've used pivots at Daystar, side rolls, overhead, drip tape. Um, so that depends on your water source and availability. If you have a hose and that's all you have to start, then that's probably what you're gonna be able to use. You're not gonna be able to use a lot of overhead irrigation that takes more pressure. Um, when we first started and we were building the greenhouse, I don't think we got a picture in here, but we had one of those lawn sprinklers, you know, which is, it's fairly uniform where it is, but it's not uniform. It, it doesn't move itself. So, you know, we'd let it run for 10 minutes and then we'd come pull the hose from the other end and pull it down 20 feet and let it go. Not ideal, but that's what we had. That's what we used. Um, it depends if it's indoor, outdoor. You know, if you're outdoor, you're probably not going to be using um, overhead irrigation for obvious reasons, right? <laughs> You'd have to have a structure to hold this up. You might as well build something else. Um, the climate, time of year, the frequency, how, you know, how much you need to water, water rights. So we actually didn't realize that we had, we were supposed to have water rights and we were just farming and then somebody uh, turned us in or reported us, which is really good because now we have water rights and we don't have to worry about it. But the water rights, um, one thing I'd recommend with water rights is if you're planning on doing a farm to start that process before you actually do the farm, right? Because the process is basically you, you fill out the things and then I think it's pretty much the same in most states. They have to put things in the paper, like in the legal section, and then people can contest it, and you know, it can go on and up and up and up. So for us, it was a little nerve-wracking, being that somebody you know, reported us, and then it's going in the paper. And so it'd be better if you just did all that before you even did anything, got your water rights if you need them, and then moved on. Um, how much acreage you have to irrigate, and you want to plan for the future. So you don't want to dig a ditch, you know, that's 300 feet long and say, well, I only need, you know, 10 gallons a minute right now and put a small water line in. 
you know, and then go back five years later, two years later, and dig a bigger ditch and put a bigger water line in. And you also need to think about, you know, if it's going 300 feet and you have a one-inch line, by the time it gets to the other end, you might not have enough volume or pressure to do what you want to do. So that's a big one. And if you don't know what you're doing, talk to somebody who does. Um, so we utilize three main types of irrigation, which is an improvement from last year, which was only two. Uh, we use drip tape primarily for tomatoes, uh, cucumbers, all those kinds of things, strawberries that don't like overhead water. And then we use a wobbler, which... Okay, we talk about more. And then overhead. And this is probably the, the most important thing, is if you don't have it set up, the plantings or direct seedings probably aren't going to happen. Because if I think I need to go, you know, seed some salad mix, and then I think, well, if I do that, I have to drag a hose or whatever from this side of the farm to this side of the farm and set it up. And you think, well, I only have an hour. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'll do this instead. So I think irrigation is probably one of the most important things you can do up front to have it everywhere. Um, so drip tape we use primarily on crops under landscape fabric. Uh, we also use on crops that don't have, you don't want to water overhead. And I think that if you can invest in thicker drip tape, if possible, it's better. It lasts way longer and it lays straight. So right now we have a couple rolls that are 7,000 feet of the thin stuff. And when the water is gone, they just, you know, the sun takes them wherever they want to go and the wind comes and they blow around and then you're untangling everything. And then by the time, you know, the next year comes, they got holes in them and you're fixing them and you're on and on. So get money or get the nicer drip tape, you'll like it. And on the drip tape, you know, they have different flow amounts. You can get spacing, you know, eight inch, 12 inch, 16 inch, 24 inch, depending on your crop. So, uh, and drip tape minimizes water usage. So this is the wobbler. How many guys have used wobblers? Wobblers are great for certain things. Um, they're used pr primarily for outdoor crops. We use them in our greenhouses as well. Uh, they're fairly affordable. They're easier to move around than other systems. Um, so we have these that we made. So they're similar to the ones that NeverSync was making. And you can make them cheaper than this using PVC. Um, anyway, we bought these and just welded them, cut them, whatever. So these you just stick in the ground every 10 feet. And this is a mini wobbler. They have a larger wobbler, but basically as the water shoots up, it hits this and it goes in a circle. And it kind of just goes like this. And it shoots out water droplets. And the nice thing with these is they have a bigger water droplet. So if it's like a windy area, the water travels farther than if it was a mist. So um, the biggest thing with these is um, figuring out your uniformity. You know, so these go in a circle, right? So if you have one of these every 30 feet, the circles don't overlap very much. You know, this might shoot 30 feet the whole way across. Um, so for me, we decided to do them at 10 feet so that this circle is overlapping this circle, which is overlapping this circle, right? And you have a higher uniformity. So then 
you basically have a round circle and you get enough round circles and it makes a rectangle, right, that covers your beds. And then we have, so on the bottom, we got these cam locks and this is just a cap, it's a little dirt, but so I have these on hoses, poly pipe, or you can get, not the caps, not the caps but um, So they have, they have all kinds of different fittings, right? So these would go on maybe the end of a PVC or garden hose. You can connect to this and get an adapter. And then, you know, it just goes on here. You push it on there. These things don't need to be on there, but, and you lock it on there, right? This is way faster than turning a garden hose, those kinds of things. And these really aren't that expensive. These are you know, buck fifty a piece or something. So if you have them every ten feet, you have to move a row. You have to move several of them to move a row of irrigation. So it's just a quick way to yeah. unhook and rehook. Yeah. So it's a lot quicker. And I think when I build more, I'm just going to use ten foot pieces of PVC. We're we're using poly pipe, but then it bends, and you're having to lift them all up and drag them around. You know, you, you don't want to get dirt in the ends because then they can clog up. But these don't clog up too bad because they got to good size jet. But the, the best thing is if you have these everywhere and you don't move them. You know, and you can use PVC cheaper. We built these to move them because we didn't have enough money for everything, but the ideal thing is you have them everywhere and you just turn it on, right? Um, so these can be used for germination and crop irrigation. So. That's the other thing with germination. If you have them there, you can turn them on you know, once or twice a day easily. If you have them across the farm and you gotta bring them over for like carrots for the first week and germinate them two or three times a day sometimes, it's way too much work. So if you can see, we put in overhead irrigation, which are these, you know, they're hanging from the greenhouse structure. And for a 30 foot bay, we have two rows of those, which are, you know, these kind of things. And these put out a lot of water fairly quickly. Yeah, and they're a fine mist. So these are great for germination, for any of that kind of stuff. And these, we put these every three feet. So we, we talked about uniformity a second ago with the other one. And these are every three feet, so the circles are really overlapping. Um, but this is great for germinating carrots, salad, any of those kind of things. We use it. Um, in the summer for head lettuce, those kind of crops will turn it on for two or three minutes and it'll cool everything down. So the nice thing about it is it has high uniformity. It's always there. I can just turn it on. It's easy to use. It puts out a lot of water. Um, it is a little bit more costly up front, but now it's just there. Uh, so for irrigation, I would highly recommend open sprinkler and um, this thing is, we don't actually have it, but we, uh, I had it at our old farm that we worked on and we had two acres and we had lots of zones and we put this thing in and you can't find anything else on the market that comes close to this for the, for the cost and the ease of use. Most systems are three to $10,000. And this one, you can plug it in, you can get valves on all your zones and you can tell it what to do for everything. So you basically have to run wire to each valve. 
And you know, you can say, okay, this bed is carrots. I want it to come on, you know, every three hours for 30 seconds for the next seven days, and it'll do it. And you can do multiple things at one time. Where if you get like a rainbird, you know, it just cycles through. So you can do one zone at a time. And this one here, if you have multiple things that you need to do, and you have the water pressure, it can do anything you want. You know, if, if you know that you're going to be harvesting carrots for market and your soil's dry, you can have it come on at two in the morning. And then you can go out there at 10 and harvest carrots and it's kind of moist. So it's, it's a beautiful thing and it's only a couple hundred dollars. And this thing is, is great for, for Sabbath because everything's automated. And you can get on your phone and you can change it. So if you're at farmer's market and it's raining, you can get on there and turn it off. It has some sensors, but I would definitely check it out. It'll also open your garage doors if you want to. And it's open source technology, so if you guys know how to work on it and can improve it, then everyone can get a blessing from it. But you can have up to like 80 zones with infinite options for programming. Okay, so we're going to talk briefly about trellising and pruning plants. So there are certain plants that we always trellis or prune because it helps to keep them more manageable and in their place. It allows us to have more intensive planting because we can plant them closer together because they're not growing as big. Um, it can help the fruit ripen faster because it, it directs all of that energy to one place instead of multiple directions. And then it helps to keep the produce cleaner and away from pests because you're trellising it up and it's not laying on the ground. So, um, <clears throat> go ahead. So there are certain crops that, crops that we routinely, or we should routinely, we don't always, but trellis and prune. Sometimes we get busy and it doesn't happen like it should. But mostly these are tomatoes and cucumbers. And so what we do is we remove the branching leaves, or what, what people like to call the suckers, from the plants to direct the energy into only one or two leaves. So sometimes we'll trellis into two leaves and sometimes it'll be just one. Um, so you know how when you grow cucumbers or something like that, it grows and it grows and it grows. And you want to keep <laughs> that, all of that growth going one place, pretty much. <clears throat> so the tomatoes, we trellis onto strings that, we can be, that can be lowered. So as they grow up and they get too tall, then we lower it down and, and keep going. Um, and we use tomato clips to secure them to the string and tomahooks to hang them because the tomahooks you can unroll the wire or the string off of. And then the upgrade that we want to make down the road is a system called the clipper system. And I wish I had a video, but we didn't think to put it in. Um, but super easy way to trellis and to just move plants really quickly, drop them, move on, you know. Um, so it's a great system. It's like in Germany or something, isn't it? Yeah, so you basically have like a three or five foot stainless steel rod with a hook on the top. So you hook it on your rod, you know, and then it's hanging down where you can work on it. And then they have two clips and it goes around the plant and then connects to the stainless rod, right? So you have two of them and then when you want to lower it, you take off the bottom one, you pinch this one and you lower it down the thing and you take the bottom one and you put it back up on top. 
<laughs> and then you lower in lane. So then, yeah. you know, especially if you have warmer climates, then you take the whole crop and you slide it down. So then the, the vine just kind of trails behind you. Does that make sense? It's called the clipper system. It's Q-L-I-P-R. So the clip moves up the... <clears throat> so the clip, it's just, it's like a clip that has like a soft, cushy something on the inside. Like it's a cushion. Foam. Yeah, like a foam. And so it wraps around the tomato so it's not damaging the tomato and then it clips closed. You know, around the tomato and the wire. And so then... And then you kind of, like a pad. It's, it like snaps, kind of. Yeah, it's like, a, it's, it's like a clamp. Yeah. Okay. It's an easy release one, though. So when you're doing it, you can release it, you know, you can slide with this hand, and then you can, or you can release it, slide, and then put it up, and then go. So it's like really fast. Once you get it down, you can just boom, 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 down the. Yeah, so, that so. the major difference is we've had trellis systems where the, the string is 12 feet up. 11 feet up. And then you're on a ladder up there, lowering the string. So this, you can do it all from a working height. And anybody can do it, because the rod is like, you know, from the trellis eight foot down to here, it's like right here. So you can just grab everything. You're not up on a ladder, which is way safer and faster. So like most systems, it's an investment. It's not a cheap system, but we really want to upgrade to that, because like I said, we don't always have time to prune the tomatoes, and especially if they're getting up high. They, we tend to just kind of let them go because we don't have time to pull out the ladder, drop them down, move them all down, etc. So, and then the cucumbers we trellis onto something called Hortonova. It's like a plastic mesh, and it has squares, and so you roll it out. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, they just grow up onto it, and you'll see it in some of these pictures later. So this is our tomatoes. Gosh, these these are really dark. So this is like looking down at them. So those are all the tomahooks you see hanging there with the string wrapped up on them. And then this is kind of from the bottom. So you can see the strings coming down and there's a clip up there. There's one down here. And it just kind of, the clip pinches the string and then goes around the stem of the tomato and holds it up. And so you can take it straight up that way. <coughs> and then here's the cucumbers, our daughter's helping trellis. So these ones we had on strings with tomahooks. You can kind of see the tomahooks along the top there. And we've found that they do better on Hortonova just because with, you know, they have all of these. Um, <clears throat> tendrils? Yeah, tendrils that are trying to grab onto things. They want to climb. And when you have Hortonova, there's just more for them to climb on and they tend to trellis themselves a little more. Whereas this, you're, you're doing all the work to keep them to that one string. But it really helps harvest because it keeps stuff up off the ground, they're clean, they're not getting beat up on the ground, and then it's a workable height. We have a lot of people comment at Farmer's Market about how beautiful our cucumbers are um, because everyone else's are all like laying in the dirt. So, <coughs> Okay, so then that was trellis and prune. So then there's other crops that we <coughs> only trellis and we do not prune. So those would be like peas and pole beans, and we use Hortonova for both of those. And um, like I think he showed our greenhouse layout where we usually just put that Hortonova up, we already have a structure, so we just tie it to that and go. Um, so after initial training of getting the plants up, they'll usually just go for it, they just climb. And so we have a couple pictures of that. This is our wall of green beans. Matt's here, he's transplanting. Um, 
And so you can see in the greenhouse, it's grown all the way up that trellis, and then it's starting to go up some of our support wires there. And so um, they just go to town on that Hortonova. And <clears throat> like you said, we get amazing yields planting them like this. And we used to grow bush beans and never did pole beans because we didn't want to have to um, deal with trellises and tearing them out and all of that because it's so much work. But you know, when you're bending over and picking beans from these little tiny bushes, it is such a backache. And those are so fast to just go through and pick them off. And you know, for us, we already have that structure in place, and so it's very easy to do that. And we we grow them now, and we're like, why didn't we ever grow bush beans when you can have them up trellis like this? So if you don't have the structure like we have, um, this is our pea field, and I put this picture up of my daughter. She's eating borage. <laughs> But um, behind her, you can see there's the peas. And so what we did is the uprights there, we just drove T-posts into the ground. Mm -hmm. And then we took like a T-fitting, PVC T-fitting, and then we, we fed um, conduit through there. And so it's really easy to set up, really easy to break down. And then we put the Hortonova on that um, with probably zip, oh no, we didn't, we didn't use zip ties. We just wove it through the top in and out of the of the Hortonova all the way down and so then it's really secure and then on the bottom we just ran a string once the piece got tall enough to hold them up against it and then they just went for it our t-posts are about 10 feet and we just use 10 foot emt pipe and then we use a emt connector and one thing um simple to do you know when we had four rows on there and with four rows, 10 foot apart, you get a lot of T-posts. And, you know, if you're just kind of going through haphazardly pounding them in, they're not straight, they're not whatever. So what I did on mine, on each end, you know, I put the two posts in and tried to get them to the height. And then I just ran string down from the top of the T-post to the top of the T-post in a straight line. And then I just pounded all the T-posts in on that straight line to the height. It didn't take me any longer. And when I was done, you can see everything is just straight. And it's way more enjoyable to look at things that are orderly than chaotic. It doesn't take any longer. It's actually faster. I know you have a question, but I really want to wait because we have a lot to get through this hour. Um, so there's one other thing I wanted to say. Oh, so when we plant these, we use a paper pot transplanter for the peas often. Um, because it's like really cold and then it's warm and we want to be able to get those in the ground right away. Um, we have issues when we direct seed because our weather is just so erratic there. So anyway, we put them in the paper pots by hand, three peas per cell, we pack them in there. And then we use that paper pot transplanter to put out two rows and then we come back and we put the trellis in between the two rows and the two rows will then climb on that one trellis per bed. So that's how we do that. So then there's other crops that we do not trellis, but we prune, and those would be things like basil and strawberries. And basically, that's just to encourage it to, like with the basil, it'll branch out if you cut it, um, and then you can get more of a yield from that instead of it just having one long spindly thing, because I've seen people do that and then just pick the leaves off of it. Um, and then pruning the runners from strawberry plants allows more of that energy to go to the actually producing plant. So you can be creative and find what works for you. We know people who always trellis their summer squash, and they have great success with that. We've tried it. 
We didn't have great success, but we've had some success with it. Same with melons and winter squash. We've tried these because we have such bad hail issues. Um, to plant them outside, they usually get damaged, and then we can't take them to market. To plant them inside, they take up way too much space. So we probably just aren't going to be growing many of those crops anymore. Maybe zucchini, but the melons and winter squash are such long season crops. So, okay, so now talking about harvest and post-harvest, this is a lot to get through. Hmm? Um, so the biggest thing that I want to drive home is that when you harvest something, you cannot improve upon the quality. You can only maintain the quality. So you start with the best quality produce that you have, and you try to maintain that quality till it gets to the end user. Make sense? So the way we handle it, when we harvest it, when we uh, wash it, when we pack it, you know, we want to treat it kindly because we want to get a really nice product to the end user. So tools that we use for harvesting are things like harvest knives, and this is like a mainstay on our farm. This Victorinox serrated knife. It's like a three and a quarter inch serrated knife with the sheath. You just stick it on there, and we use this for like everything. Um, and there are specific field knives, machetes, lettuce cutting knives, specialized equipment that you can get. So if you're doing more of one thing and you find that you know a lettuce knife works great for what you're doing, but we find this to be really like multi-purpose. Anytime we have someone that comes to work on the farm, we just gift them one of these, our kids have them. Um, one thing is you need to make sure that they stay clean. With the sheath, they can get dirt and stuff in there. And if you you know, you have to think about food safety, so you don't want to use them on certain things and then use them on food. So um, <clears throat> that's where it's nice to have like dedicated harvest equipment and to sanitize your harvest equipment before you use it. Um, another thing, I should have talked about this when I was talking about tomato pruning, but we use these <laughs> to um, when we're pruning, pruning and trellising tomatoes. So this is like a hands-free um, unit that's like really gummed up. Okay, so it fits like this on your hand, so you can work, and then you can prune, and you can work with your hands, and so it kind of keeps it out of the way, so I can be trellising tomato plants and then pruning as I go. What is that called? It's like a hands-free, it's on the sheet, um, so under like pruning and trellising or something. We just bought it at Johnny's, it's like hands-free. Probably pass it around. This thing is like really, I don't want to and then just, you know, some simple shears, something like that works great. So we also use what's called the Quick Cuts Green, Greens Harvester, and I'm sure that a lot of you have heard about this. Um, so it can harvest, this like totally changed a lot of baby greens because it can harvest stuff way faster than you can ever harvest it by hand. And, it used to be that we would just harvest with these knives and it would take hours and hours and hours. And now it's like a one person job and it can be done really fast. You can buy it through Johnny's. Um, you can't. Oh, you can't, not anymore. Jonathan Dysinger sells a farmer's friend. Um, he probably has a booth here. I don't know, are they here this year? They're here. They're coming, okay. Anyway, great piece of equipment. He's done a great job designing this tool. It runs with a drill. And you just go down the bed and it saws the lettuce off and puts it in the basket and you just dump it in the tote and it's done. 
And so we use that. The only thing with that is you need to have pretty weed-free beds because it doesn't differentiate weeds from lettuce for you. And they have to be pretty uniform, but it works really good. And then it's nice to have like a harvest apron or a bucket or a bag, you know, like they have the ones that are on suspenders, like a belly bucket, something. So when you're harvesting tomatoes, you can just be putting them in. If you don't have that, you kind of have to have two people. So you have one person holding a box and one person putting in, especially for tomatoes and that type of thing. And then garden carts are so valuable. And in the resource list, we, um, we just found plans to make a really great garden cart for fairly cheap online. And so there's um, the name of the place to go to find those plans. But a good garden cart helps to haul stuff around so you don't have to carry everything. <clears throat> So post-harvest, I really wish I would have put more um, pictures and stuff in here, but for somehow I overlooked it. So tools for cleaning produce. So we sell a lot of baby greens, salad mix, arugula, those type of things. And they can be time consuming to clean all the dirt and debris off of them, to dry them, and then to have them hold well. You need to get a lot of the water off of them. So. A bubbler is something that you can make fairly cheaply and you can find plans to do that online as well. And basically you just take a, like a stock tank and what do they use, like a 100 gallon one usually. Put PVC pipe in there with holes drilled in it and a blower and you turn that on, you fill it with water, you put the greens in there and turn it on and it basically just aerates all of the greens in there and all of the sediment drops down. So. It basically washes itself. We have a triple base sink. We've been triple rinsing our lettuce to try to get all of this, all the stuff out of there. We're building a bubbler this year because it's just so much faster and so much more efficient. And then you need a spinner to dry your greens. So if you're doing any type of greens, you definitely need to have some of the, this equipment. Um, you can convert washing machines. You can sanitize a washing machine drum and, and use that really. They have conversion kits that, that make them a little more sanitary than that and easier to clean. Or you can buy a commercial salad dryer, but those run into thousands of dollars. Um, but they do create a better end product because they have less RPM so they don't damage the lettuce as much and they get, you know, it gets the lettuce dryer. So, and then for other items like root crops, carrots, radishes, beets, we use um, a root sprayer. So this is probably one of the best ones on the market. It has high pressure and low flow, so you can get a lot of pressure with this thing um, with not very much PSI. And um, it's adjustable, so the farther you pull the trigger, the more it sprays out. Um, and this can get like root crops really clean because you can get the pressure on there. And so we just spray the root crops and then, you know, we'll usually put them in um, a sink of water to hydro-cool them and then let them dry off a little bit. So those are some tools that you'll want for that. So the goal is to clean and cool the produce as quickly as possible. So you want to get things in water and kind of hydro-cool them down and then um, get them all packaged up and get them in the cooler so that, you know, like maintaining that quality of produce. And then you always want to label and date your produce bins before putting them in the cooler because there's nothing worse than coming in there and having like 10 totes of cucumbers and it's like which ones are from last week and which ones are from this week because nobody took the time to slap a label on it. And it can be just something as easy as using masking tape and writing down the date, the crop, you know, where you harvested it, if you track that stuff and putting it on the bin. And it just saves a lot of time. 
and it's good practice. So, um, so packaging is going to vary depending on if you're selling wholesale or retail, and it's going to vary from market to market. So, um, you know, sometimes people don't want to buy, you know, I know people who go to market and they just have a tub of greens and people use tongs and they pull the greens out and put them in a bag and get how much they want. Other people don't want to do that, understandably so, and so they package them in bags. So it's nice to have consistency. Um, you have to decide if you're going to charge at your end at retail establishment weight versus quantity. And then if you're going to package in bags or clamshells or bunches. So here's my son bunching up beets for market. And then the peas, we just individually package those into half-pound bags. And we just use sandwich bags and then slap a label on there. It holds them closed. It's really simple and easy. And things like that save a lot of time at farmer's market because people, they just want to know, like, I can get a bag of peas for $3, whereas if you buy, if you sell something by the pound, one, sometimes, you know, they're not going to be like, well, I don't want to pay $6 a pound for peas, but they'll grab a $3 bag of peas that's a half pound. You know, so a lot of times it's just the, you know, how you sell them on things, and they like to know what it's going to cost, and um, it helps things flow faster when you're at market. So you can get clamshells that are biodegradable. They're made from, like, tapioca starch or, or corn or things like that. Um, if you have issues with plastic, um, they cost a lot more. We've looked at it, but it's, you know, you pay for that, and you can put that cost on the consumer, or you can put it on yourself, or you can just buy cheap bags. So what we do when we package our salad mix, we basically use bread bags from the grocery store. We have ordered some different ones to test out different sizes. You know, um, Connor Crickmart, Never Sink, he buys one, I think they're like nine by 18 or something because he likes it and he doesn't put a gusset on the bottom. It's just flat on the bottom. So it forces the product up like this and it's narrower and so it looks like a taller bag. So it looks more full, right? It's all psychological. So we tried those bags and I didn't like them. I didn't, I didn't like how they looked. I just liked the cheap bags better. So we probably won't buy that size and shape again, but you know, try it out. It really depends on the quantity that you're selling. We sell lettuce in half pound bags and some people sell them in a third of a pound or whatever. So, um, oh, there's one other thing I was gonna say. I'll think of it later. So labeling really adds a level of professionalism. Um, and actually with the new produce laws, it even if you are exempt from the produce laws, you have to follow some labeling practices. And that may just be putting the name and address of your farm at the farmer's market. But if you're going to individually package things, um, it just looks better if you have a label on them. So you want to put what is inside, the quantity that's there, and your business name and location. And then consider putting a harvested on or a best by date. So we would, on our salad mix, we would say harvested on July 7th. And then we'd go to market July 8th, and people would be like, whoa, you just harvested this yesterday? You know, and so that can be a selling point. If you tend to take things from one market to the next, if they don't sell, then maybe you don't want to do that. But we, we try to only take what we're going to sell at that one market to help maintain that quality. So you can use pre-printed stickers or printable labels. We have a label printer that's called a Brother QL 800, and I think it was like 80 bucks or something on Amazon and you buy, it's like a sticker label, and you design it, it's really easy, and then it just prints out and cuts it. 
and so you just pull them off. I like it because if you buy pre-printed stickers, you can't change anything on there, but it's fully editable if you get the printer. And um, it just looks really slick. We've had people comment about how they really like our labels, and it's something that's so simple. So you could also buy printable labels like the Avery, you know, address labels and stuff and print them. So here's just a picture from Farmer's Market. My daughter basically runs the market stand. She's nine. And then you can see we have labels on bread and peas and salad and things. And not everything is packaged and labeled, but... So anytime you're handling ready-to-market produce, you need to be thinking about food safety, okay? So even if you're not covered by the produce rule in the Food, Mo food Safety Modernization Act, you want, a proper, you want to practice proper hygiene, right? Do unto others. If you don't want someone else, and, and I see this, people come out to the farm and they think it's a farm, and they will literally go and pee on the tree and come back and, and go to work, and we're like, no, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> go wash your hands, you know? And so I think that part of it is ignorance. And so you really have to focus on if you're going to have other people on your property working, you need to teach them proper hygiene. And that they always need to wash their hands before they work with produce. Do unto others. <laughs> so all food contact surfaces, like harvest tools, like I was saying about a knife, if it's a multi-purpose knife, Containers, packaging should be sanitizable or disposable. And so before we harvest, we sanitize all of our harvest totes, all of our packaging totes, anything that's reused is getting cleaned and sanitized. And then it's a good idea, like with us, it's just the two of us, but if you have employees and stuff, you want to create SOPs, standard operating procedures, so people know what the procedure is going into it. And this is going to happen every time before we start harvesting for the day. We're going to go in. We're going to clean the pack shed. We're going to, you know, harvest or we're going to sanitize everything, all the totes, and it's ready to go. So, good practice. <clears throat> so, I want to talk just a little bit about GAP or good agricultural practices and FISMA, which is the Food Safety Modernization Act. So, I have a whole lecture later. Um, I put, I think I put on there when it is later. Um, later in the conference that's just on food safety and talking about this. But, so GAP is basically a voluntary program that was, came about because a lot of end buyers, like stores and things, wanted to see that a farm had good practices when it came to food safety and properly handling food. And so, it was, so basically they said, we want some kind of certification from you. So GAP came from that and different private entities mostly would come and inspect farms and say, yep, you're good, put a stamp on it, and then they could show that to their end purchaser. It got a little confusing because then you had all these different companies that were giving GAP certifications, but they all had different requirements and they all had different inspections, and then grocery stores would say, well, we want you to have a certification from this place when they already had it from two other places and so it just really needed to be streamlined somehow and so eventually the USDA came in and, and said this is you know the inspection form that you should all use but then the Food Safety Modernization Act covers a whole spectrum of food safety issues not just farming 
and there's a rule that is a part of FISMA that is called the produce rule, and that applies to producers. So it's just the produce rule that we're concerned about mainly. And for most states, it's the Department of Agriculture that oversees compliance, but there are like five or six states that the USD will come in and do inspections. So not everyone is required to comply with the produce rule. And I handed out a handout that shows a flow sheet to determine whether you are required to comply to that or whether you are exempt. Um, but whether you are exempt or not, I think that you should take a food safety course. Anyone who handles food should take a food safety course. And um, so the best practice is to have systems in place regardless of enforcement. Because if they ever came to your farm and said, hey, are you doing what you should be? Then you can just say, yeah, here's the documents. We comply even though we don't have to. And then and it's like, okay, you know, nothing to worry about. If somebody does get sick from food that you gave them, you, they'll act like you should have been complying. So it's not like I didn't have to comply, you know, I'm off the hook. You know, they're just not saying that you have to do it all the time, but you should be doing it. Yeah. Okay, so that's all I had there. So the flow sheet, does anybody have one of those that I can look at? Oh, here's one. So I can go through this with you a little bit. It's kind of hard to navigate some of the produce rule because there's a lot that goes to it and there's a lot to read. Um, I, put, I think I put a couple resources. I know I did on the one this afternoon, um, and I know I did at the, at the food safety course this afternoon. But, um, there's Cornell um, University has the Food Safety Alliance, and they it's their job to train farmers in how to properly handle food. And so they have a ton of resources, a ton of them. So they're a great resource. Anyway, so the first question, does your farm grow, harvest, pack, or hold produce? Yeah, we grow food. So if you don't, then your farm is not covered by this rule. So it would be a different type of farming practice. Okay, does your farm on average in the previous three years has it had $25,000 or less in produce sales? If it, if it has had less than $25,000, then you're exempt. If you, don't, if you don't bring in more than $25,000 in produce sales. Okay, so if you've had more, you go down. Is, the produce, um, is your produce one of the commodities the FDA has identified as rarely consumed raw? So if you think about the things you grow, we grow cucumbers, tomatoes, carrots, they're usually consumed raw, right? So keep going. Is your produce for personal on-farm consumption? No, we sell our produce, so we keep going. Is your produce intended for commercial processing that adequately reduces pathogens, like it has a kill step? And usually that's like you're sending it to a processing facility who's then sanitizing your produce and then marketing it. And so that doesn't apply to us. And so then this last one, does your farm on average in the previous three years have less than $500,000 in annual food sales and a majority of the food sold directly to a qualified end user? So less than 500,000 in sales, we would qualify for that. <laughs> I wish we made more than that. Um, and then a majority of the food, which so that would be at least 51% of your food, 
goes directly to a qualified end user. And that would be a restaurant or food retail establishment that is located in the same state or not more than 275 miles away or just direct to consumers. So if you're selling at farmer's markets, you know, things like that. Or if you're selling wholesale, but it's going direct to a restaurant or like we sell to um, some food co-ops, packaged salad. So that, that's a qualified end user. So a qualified end user would not be if you sold to, say, a food hub where they're taking your food, they're repackaging it into containers for people and then selling it. Do you know what a food hub is? You guys understand that? Okay. So at least 51% of your sales and $500,000. And so that exempts a lot of people, probably a lot of people in this room, right? So most of us are probably exempt from the Food Safety Modernization Act produce rule, but like we said, best practices is to comply. There are certain things though that, and I'm still not sure on the dates and things, but you do have to have your water tested. Yeah. And you have to do that multiple times in a year to get a database. So I do talk about that in the food safety class. So um, there's different levels of compliance, but as of this January, everyone that is not exempt is compliant. With um, not on the water safety. So even if you're exempt, you still have to keep certain records. You still have to like put certain things on your label and you have to test your water quality. So everyone's required to test their water quality. And it has to do with irrigation water and post-harvest water. And it has to be reflective of, so I'm gonna talk about this more in the produce safety class. So if you wanna learn about that, come there. But basically from the compliance date, there's an additional four years. So I would say that we have four years now to comply with our water. And basically all that is, is testing your water source, making sure it's not contaminated with bacteria and keeping records of that. If you have um, municipal water, you don't have to do very much testing because they do the testing for you. You just have records of their testing. If you have well water, you have to test it like four times that first year and once every year thereafter. If you have service water, because it's a higher risk for contamination, it's a lot. It's like, 20 tests over that, no, yeah, I think it's 20 tests over the four years or something like that. And you just have to be testing it a lot because there's so many variables. If a flock of geese lands in your irrigation pond, it's gonna affect your water. And you wouldn't be using surface water for um, post-harvest without some kind of filtration and sanitizing system in place. But you could use it for irrigation even if it's not like sanitary. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.